You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Everyone, welcome to another episode of Everything Belongs. It's been such a joy to be in conversation with Richard and Mike and some of the other CAC staff as we begin this series of living the teachings of Richard Rohr forward. And in this mini-series, we're really kind of trying to open the curtains and pull back the veil about how we've been creating this podcast and what are the reasons behind it. And we often start at Richard's house where we tee up our time where Mike and I are in his living room and Corey's there and, of course, Opie's there. And we have these conversations with Richard that try to anchor the direction of where that episode is going. And this is going to be true as we continue this podcast in future seasons. In the first season of Everything Belongs, we're going to focus on falling upward. That'll be the book in focus, the one we center on. And we're going to invite all of us listening, all of us participating in these conversations, to consider how we live the teachings of Richard Rohr forward, particularly through the lens of this book. We know that context determines things. We know that relationships and time. So part of our intention with this podcast is to consider how does this teaching and these, this work live in our lives, depending on where we are on that journey. So I'm here right now with Corey Wayne and Mike Petro on the CAC campus in our little makeshift studio where we record the voiceovers, where we record conversations like this, and also conversations with our guests. Uh, so welcome, fellas. Uh, it's great to be in this room with you. Good to be with you. Howdy, howdy. And as we pull back this curtain, uh, Corey, I'd love to kick it off with you first to talk about the production. How do we get to this point in this journey of this podcast, Everything Belongs? How did it start? And what are some of the, the things that you think would be of interest for those listening uh, of the shape of this program? I think it's important when thinking about this project to remember that we started this back in 2019. At that point in time, we actually thought this show was going to be an archival podcast of Richard's where we would pull stuff from the archive by topic and kind of work in tandem with the daily meditations. That was the original thought process. And then as we moved through the pandemic, we entered 2021. We started this founder transition project because Richard was moving from the center to the circumference of the organization, so to speak. And so we started refining programs and projects. And then uh, along the way, this show always continually was being developed in what I lovingly refer to as urinized R&D lab. <laughs> but we ended up shelving it for almost a year. And then when it came time to do it, Mike had been saying this phrase over and over in CAC meetings of living the teachings forward. And so I went back to the drawing board and thought, what if we make a dynamic, immersive experience through Richard's teachings of living these teachings from the context of our own lives? Because many of us are emerging from a global pandemic. There's no way of going back to what we thought was normal. And so all of us are collectively trying to live into a new normal. And so I see that reflected in all of the questions that I see coming in from all the other shows. They love this Christian contemplative path, but they're also asking, how do I apply this into the context of my own life? And so thus came the setup we have now. And I love the way you just named the evolving nature of this as well. I feel like that's very much at the heartbeat of this show is how are Richard's teachings also evolving? I think you, uh, listeners hear that in our conversations about things that have been nuanced since then. And that's just built into the DNA of this podcast and will con continue to evolve as we go through the different uh, books of Richard's throughout this. Thank you for that, Corey. And for the 
evolutionary partnership on this podcast. It's been such a joy. And Mike, uh, I would love to hear your own sense about the evolution of this podcast, the questions that animate this process for why we anchor down on certain conversation points and what the direction is for the future. Yeah, that's a, gosh, I love that, Paul. And I love that you specifically highlighted the questions. You know, it's interesting. Last episode, we talked about these questions that sort of guide how we do teaching here at CAC and build content. What do we want to know? How do we want to grow? How do we want to show up in the world? But to look at it at the most basic level, it is about the questions. Curiosity is such a crucial aspect of the contemplative engaged Christian tradition, right? And what has been amazing, I had this moment when we were recording the other day with Richard, we were, we were having a great conversation that'll show up in one of the episodes about putting uh, new wine and new wineskins and all these things, doesn't matter. I just, there was a moment where we were talking and I had this overwhelming experience and I almost started to cry where I realized how much it has legitimately changed me to just go and hang out with Richard on Tuesday afternoons. And actually, I think this is what the idea of living the teachings forward was born out of. How many of us on this team, how many of us listening have read a book by Richard or heard a podcast by Richard or taken a, a course or been a part of the living school and we hear him say something that's so brilliant and we feel a deep yes inside our heart. It makes us feel not crazy. It invites us home. It gives us a new way to imagine spirituality and Christianity and the world and transformation. And of course, immediately we have so many questions because then we want to know, okay, how do I apply that at my job? How do I apply that as a parent? What does that mean about X, Y, or Z? And the chance that we've had for the last few years to ask Richard those questions, to go, I love what you're saying here. I love, I love what you're saying about how everything belongs. And Richard, if everything belongs, why does it have to hurt so bad? And then listen to him take those questions and nuance them and work that through with us. It's amazing. And it's such a gift to do that in community, which is a part of what this podcast is about. And it's such a gift for us to bring people into that ongoing conversation with Richard and hear him invite us to carry the work forward and to let us ask new questions mm -hmm. of his teaching and continue to be curious and wrestle with those things. What an awesome invitation. Well said. That's so well said. And I, that is so much the spirit of this show. And in this episode, you're going to get a taste of what future seasons are going to look like. We're calling this episode Tips for the Road. So you'll get a sense of how we intend to work through chapter by chapter. Maybe sometimes we'll take a couple chapters on through one of Richard's books and we'll anchor in the question of what do we want to know? And we'll engage Richard with the deepening and circling questions that dig deeper for the context of our lives. And of course, all of those listening. From the Center for Action and Contemplation, I'm Mike Petro. I'm Paul Swanson. And I'm Corey Wayne. And this is Everything Belongs. So Richard, Talking about falling upwards, one of the things I love about the book is how well you use mythology to oh. sort of craft the arc of it. And so I'm super curious, what myths or stories have helped you make sense of your journey? Wow. Well, I have to say, even though it never sold that well, uh, my book, 
Quest for the Grail. I love that book. Is really, it's all in there. It was the classic hero's journey of the West. Uh, and after that, it'd be, I'm afraid I'm an old Catholic, Lives of the Saints that I grew up on, you know, idealizing saints. Yeah, and uh, Francis in particular. Uh, is there any other that I read it and I said, I want to be like that, huh? If there is one, it isn't jumping out at me. Well, the Parsifal myth, the the Holy Grail myth, is yes. such a such a yeah. foundation of Western culture, and it's so powerful because it's not a story of the hero doing everything right and winning victory yeah, after victory, right? Yeah, that's why I like it. Holy fool, yeah. Parsifal probably means it's the German version I do like the best. More oh, than yeah. the English. The English is too much upper class. Yeah. The Arthurian legends. The French is too, forgive me, French. That's the Eschenbach version? <laughs> 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 we just lost all the listeners in France. It's there we all, go. you know, sweet and sophisticated. <laughs> yeah. But it's good. Yeah. But uh, in, in that book, I mainly do the German. Yeah. Yeah. Wolfram von Eschenbach. Yeah, it's my favorite as well. What is it that makes it? Well, you said it already. You know how to read my mind. It's that he isn't a superhero like we create today for American action movies. Yeah. I mean, American action movies are not in the great tradition yeah. of Superman who could fly through the sky. and They're Icarus who you know, falls from the sky. Yeah. So we're not in the tradition of great literature. We really aren't. Except when we occasionally create an anti-hero like, uh, who was that that Tom Hanks played? Come on. Oh, Forrest Gump? Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah. There's an anti-hero, yeah. That, that, that makes a lot of sense with the theme of falling upward or yeah, failing yes, forward, yeah. right? Failing forward, very yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. Our wounds lead us. That's that's and that's Parsifal. Is yeah. so many wounds. I don't think a Western person, main line, would know how to write a book like that anymore. We are so win lose, mm. success conscious. Mm. Yeah. Richard, uh, teasing it out even further, you know, there's this classic line in Falling Upward. What is Where it? you say, we grow spiritually much more by doing it wrong than oh, by yeah. doing it right. Yeah. Why? Oh, go ahead. No, I, just, I think Bono actually quotes that in his memoir. Right, yeah. yes. Why? Bono quotes that? Yeah. Oh. Why do you think that's such an important line for this framework of Falling Upward? Why is that necessary? Well, I got to credit Jesus. And that's what Jesus taught. And it's how we've, in a primary, fundamental way, misinterpreted Jesus. You know, he says to eat with sinners, to prefer the least. How did we get him into a winner's script? Victory Chapel. <laughs> mm. Come on. I, I know there's a correct way to understand victory. 
But it's not that way of succeeding. You know, so we have a, an American version that we prefer, which is about being pure and holy and righteous and holier than thou. And we miss all the social sins. It's all private purity codes. I don't drink, I don't gamble, I don't dance, so I'm pure. How did we do that? There is no evidence, none, in Jesus. And you just have to say, well, you know, I believe Jesus was the first non-dual teacher of the West. And the West just doesn't understand paradoxical thinking. Uh, it doesn't even like it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, one thing I appreciate what you saying about Jesus modeling that is that there never seems or appears to be this grand strategy of like, um, in Jesus. In Jesus. Here's, here's yeah. the success that this will look like of like no. seven, seven virtues of someone who follows mm -hmm. me, but it's the embracing of the journey itself it's and, so the, and true. the totality of life. Yes. And that's why he's always saying, follow me, come and see. Like there's not like, if you do this, then this will happen. Yeah. He doesn't praise a list of virtues yeah. that are all you know, puritanical. America is still puritanical, it really is. That religion is about being pure. Mm. In a, you know, diet way, a, a workout way, saying that to three men in good shape, I'm embarrassed. But that's not what it's about, yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know I'm a good originist, and I, I think about how much we think that it's our strengths that get us there, like you said, and it's our of virtues course. that get us there, right? Yes. Origin, Origin says that for the soul to know itself is beautiful, it has to be threatened. He says that our wounds turn into health-bestowing wounds. So it's our wounds that lead us to wisdom and our losses that lead us to love, not our strengths. But what, what does that look like in practical life for you? What does it look like to live that reality? Um, I've got to turn it off. Uh, Is that Jesus calling? Let me lead into that. One of my disappointments in that book, Quest for the Grail, yeah. is that I, don't, I couldn't find it anyway. I was looking for it. In one of the versions, when the fool or the protagonist meets the king. His first word to the king is supposed to be, what ails you? Mm -hmm. That isn't in the book, is it? Um, gosh, I've read the book, but I've read so much about the quest for the girl, I don't remember. But I do know that, like, well, what, what ails you, what is your wounding book, is. So. <laughs> is yeah. so you're but on the hook. do you see what that is saying? Yeah. At the first thing he's supposed to ask the king, it assumes the king is wounded. Yeah. And uh, telling the higher up one, join the club until you get vulnerable, 
the whole thing can't happen. That is just brilliant. What ails you, king? And I would think most kings today will say, nothing ails me. I'm fit. Yeah. Uh, now, that came to my mind when you asked the question. What's the question again? What, is it, what does it look like to actually, oh. well, to answer that question, what ails you, or to let our wounds become health bestowing wounds or let them lead us to wisdom? Like, How do we do that in the day-to-day? You have to suffer the daily humiliations mm. that are being given to you all the time. Mm. And you don't resist them, don't fight them, don't oppose them, don't disagree with them. Agree with them, mm. not in a self-defeating way, but just, a, yep, I'm a little shit, that's okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, then you're free, you know. Uh, so it has to do with practically, well, Paul puts it in Corinthians, do not take offense. Love takes no offense. Yeah. You've heard me say this before, but for years I, I really watched when I'm offended because mm. the staff doesn't respect me. Like you two. Yeah. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> Glad you're getting my text about that. <laughs> uh, I, I just think that is a tremendous opportunity to choose being wrong. L let's assume they're right. Sure. That what they don't like me for is me. I don't know, in me that just creates a great big open space for God to fill. Mm -hmm. When I refuse to fill it up myself with, aren't I wonderful? Well, you know, I, I wanna ask you this, Richard. You've talked about praying to God for one humiliation one a, day. a day. Yeah, one humiliation a day. And I have to say, in this season of your life, you've become so much fun. Mm. So I also see in the humor, right? Is there something about humor that lets us yeah. not take ourselves so seriously? Central. Yeah. It really is central. Uh, when you cannot laugh at yourself, you're egoic. You are something that has to be respected. Why do I have to be respected? Mm -hmm. yeah. I want it, but I don't have to be, you know? And I probably would learn a lot more when I recognize if even what this person said is 10% true, mm. I want to learn it, you know? Mm. And it's a disadvantage of being now well-known that people project all kind of high-minded motives on you. And oh no, Richard wouldn't do that. Richard would, yes he would. And admitting that to myself mm. is very good for me. Mm. I can walk more lightly on on the earth. Mm. Yeah. Is that why you make fun of me to help me be more? <laughs> I've been trying, but it it hasn't had the uh, desired effect. <laughs> <laughs> you might have to double down. <laughs> double down. Double down I on think, that. Yes. <laughs> Uh, you know, no, you, using your 
language of the two halves of life. Yeah. Like, this is something that came in the second half of life. Yes. And how do you look, what, what, what guidance do you offer those in the first half of life who are still seeking some of these ways of perfection to try to- Almost always. Improve oneself, whether and it's spiritually, relationally. See, if, if you're not trying real hard to be a hero, uh, I'd be disappointed in you. It's the boys who go out and get, like you three all did, a good education and played sports and whatever else you did. Uh, they're the ones who could suffer a humiliation because they've been on the other side. They've been praised and lauded, but they know it doesn't mean anything. Uh, a guy who's really been beat down. I remember a young man at New Jersey who was from inner city Cincinnati and I'd given one of my heroic talks on poverty of spirit. And he came up to me so sincerely and said, Richard, I don't think Jesus... <laughs> what did he say? I don't think Jesus wanted us to. Poverty isn't good, it's terrible. Yeah. I grew up with it. And he was so sincere. Why do you say that's good? And I realized it isn't good for him. He heard yeah. it where he had to hear it. A lower middle class family yeah. growing up without much. Yeah. So you got to be careful how you say it. Well, because there are people who need their jolt of positive mirroring before they can take the truth of negative mirroring. Mm. You need both. You really do. But you need enough of the positive to absorb the negative. And you can't tell people at the bottom, they're at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or that it's so wonderful being down there mm. where you are at the bottom. <laughs> no, that, that's not good. Mm. Uh, I don't know if I answered your question. Go ahead. Go no, ahead. I think you did. I think you, you talked uh, about the, the nuances of what that looks like uh, if one sees himself in, in the first half of life versus the second. And how even in the first half of life that looks, that could be unique and different depending on the yes. context that you're living and being raised yes. in and your own personal experiences that are out of your control what you need in that time versus yeah. how that will hopefully be um, balanced out as time goes by having both the positive yes. and the negative effect. But let's take a 15 year old boy my God, to tell him to be humble. Yeah. He wants to be, for once, a hero on the field. Uh, who wouldn't? And you're looking at your girlfriend and your parents. And are they smiling at me? You know? <laughs> Am I wonderful? You cannot take that away. And I think Jesus said it. Whoever ruins one of these little ones, mm. I really am upset with him. Because you can't take humiliation till you've taken praise. Mm. 
to, and that, that's the advantage of being given our spiritual identity by God from the beginning. Now, we don't know it, but we who are preachers of the good news should be telling people that. You've got it already. You don't need to work for it, even if you're not, you know, the captain of the team. Mm. One member of the staff, you'll figure out who it is, but he's he's beautifully spiritual, but... Uh, I said, I said, what did you play on the lacrosse team? He said, I was always captain of the lacrosse. <laughs> and he was. He, he was. But a boy needs that to be captain yeah. of the lacrosse team. And then now he can, I can make fun of him and he doesn't mind it at all. So, yeah, you, you need positive mirroring. And some rare people get it from God himself. Mm. A lot of our saints did. Little kids, they're already in love with God. Yeah. What are you pointing to? Oh. Question. Oh. I you, thought you, you were finished with this one. Opie. I was, no, I was just. Uh, you oh, can, you were pointing to your screen. I thought you were pointing to Opie. Oh, okay. no, no, go no, ahead, no. Go ahead. No, you can probably cut this, but uh, I wanted to share a poem with you that Paul and oh, I heard this week oh, that do, feels, do, do. feels relevant to what we're talking about oh, when you talk about getting it. that positive mirroring. Uh, this, this came to us from a colleague, a poem from a, uh, Shalon Harkin. And listen to this it says, If you think the eccentric God who made the octopus is going to judge you for your sins. I'm afraid you've missed the mark. Wow. If you think this wild God that spins galaxies as a pastime cares to get fussy about your mistakes or has ever made anything that wasn't born perfect and luminous, you might need to repent. If you can't yet admit how lovable and infinitely worthy the fullness of your human nature is, and if you think what God wants to do anything but perpetually pour an abundance of love gifts upon you, well, my dear friend, your soul just might need to go to confession. Wow. Who's the poet? Shalon Harkin, I believe. I'm Never heard that name. That. Yeah, it's a good one, huh? I love the, fur, the octopus I thing. figured you would. Let's talk about a strange animal. <laughs> Why would God, its head just falls over. <laughs> well, speaking of heads falling over. <laughs> so Richard, we've, we've just about come to the end of our, our conversation. And so to, to bring it all home, a very appropriate question. You're talking about mythology and the Parsifal myth and all these things. And when I think about Nostos Pothos, the myth of homecoming seems to be the foundation mm. of so many of these stories, right? We're longing to return to a home that we've never found and yet we are always searching for. How is Falling Upward a book about homecoming, about coming home? You know, one of the self-revelatory things I say in the new book on the prophets, maybe I've told you before, but the time when I almost always cried, did it once this week, is when people are reunited after a long absence, mm. family members especially. 
I just choke up. And I ask, why am I choking up? I don't know these people, but homecoming, reunion, and I never had, I don't think, any abandonment issues. But uh, thank you for saying it. I do think in, in the giant metaphor of life, it, it's about coming back to where you started. Yeah. And as I approach death, I'm thinking that so much. Well, the best way to say this is not I'm dying. I don't know what that means, but I'm finally going home, finally. I don't know what it's like yet, but I can really trust at my age that it's home. Mm. I don't know where that trust came from or even what home is like. But I'm not going to some place new. It's to all the places I've known deeply. They're pointing me to the big deep, mm. <laughs> the big real. Mm. I, thank you, that's a great question. I do think homecoming is what it's about. Now I know why I cry at homecoming. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you. Huh. I'm so struck by it. For me, it feels like every healthy spiritual path is that journey of homecoming. It's the journey of return, of going out yes, first yeah. and then the return going home. Going out first. How does that directly relate back. to falling upward as a framework, do you think? Well, the creating of the ego, which is a necessary creating, is also the creating of a separation. Mm. It's taking myself as central, and you probably got to do that almost till 40, maybe, I don't know. used to be 15, but it's pushed back. Mm -hmm. uh, and then to allow what you've created to be uncreated yeah okay i was a great basketball player that's gone now i was good looking that's gone now and you, when you could say yes to that and still be happy you've done your you've done the work yeah because now your self your true self is in god and not in what you've created even though what you've created gave you a nice trail to walk on, gave you something to do each day. <laughs> uh, but it isn't me. It isn't me. It's just my, what was the phrase we used to use? It's just my job description, no. Vocation? What did, what did, uh, Bill Plot could use why he had a good phrase. My, uh, I'll think of it later. Persona? Darn, it's gone. Uh, I love this idea, though, what you're saying of coming home to God, coming home to the true self, what you said earlier, coming back to places that you already knew, knowing them differently. It reminds me of that great line from T.S. Eliot. 
right? We shall not oh. cease from exploration. <laughs> oh, perfect. Go ahead. Yes. We shall not cease from exploration. At the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started, started. and know the place, place for, for the, the first, first time. time. That's beautiful. He was a true contemplative. Yeah. In all his poems, you see it. But thank you, Richard. We really appreciate your time. You're welcome. This theme of the introduction. Everything Belongs will continue in a moment. How do I sound like Paul Swanson when I need to do like a serious voiceover? It's called ambient the, music. The Swanson Swoon. Welcome back, everybody. From the high desert. Welcome back. <laughs> we wish you peace. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to Everything Belongs. I hope you enjoyed your time with all of us in Richard's Hermitage. We're now going to be pivoting to the next segment of the show, and that's usually where we'll be having a guest. So I thought to kick this off, I would pivot to the both of you. Why the guests that we have for this episode? and Why guests at all? Why guests at all? So we're pivoting to what is going to be a guest section. And the idea on a production standpoint for this section is to have somebody that's living these teachings forward from the context of their own life. So today's guest is none other than our faculty, James Finley, Dr. James Finley. You know, it's crazy. I, for years, I had friends who read Richard's work. I had mentors who recommended his work to me and I just never got into it. And then what happened was I was actually listening to Pete Holmes' podcast. The Comedian. The Comedian, mm-hmm. Pete Holmes. Uh, the podcast, which at that point was You Made It Weird. And he would talk about this Franciscan friar who'd written a book called Falling Upward and how just the introduction to Falling Upward had changed his life and was worth reading. And then eventually I heard him interview Richard and it sort of blew my mind and brought me into the conversation. But one of the things I love about Richard's books is they've influenced so many people and they've generated so much conversation. And Richard loves that. One of the things he always says to us is that he loves how we ask him new questions and we invite him into thinking about his own teaching material in new ways. And so when we bring these extra voices into the conversation, it really does live the teachings forward. We not only see the influence of Richard's book, but we see how other people influence his teaching by bringing it into new places of thought, which is why I'm so excited about the guests that we have this week. Yeah, we're thrilled that we have Dr. James Finley, CAC core faculty member with us to talk about the introduction of Falling Upward. And Jim really exemplifies why we're bringing guests on the podcast because through his his training as a therapist, through his own life experience as a monk, through his own lived experience in as a as a partner and as a parent, he really brings his own nuanced way of approaching some of the themes of falling upward. And we get into some of those mystical elements that he just needs so well into the dough of life. And this is part of why we're doing guests is because we know that these teachings can be applicable all places. And sometimes they're most applicable when you push back or challenge or recontextualize or add a different texture to them to get a different sense of how one can live this out in their life. And so we're thrilled to know that 
as we begin that first season of Focus on Falling Upward, we're going to talk to a whole host of folks, some who are well-known teachers, uh, some CAC core faculty, and some everyday folks who have just have their own unique perspective on how they live this forward. And so that is the thrill of this, is the exchange in this contemplative conversation, where we know that Richard will say this sometimes, we'll ask him a question, and he'll say something and say, well, I've never thought about it that way. And that is the juice of contemplative conversation, is seeing what arises when folks who are living this in their own context come together and wrestle with ideas, new ideas emerge, or as we were talking about earlier, uh, new wine and new wineskins. Spoiler alert, one of the things I love about the conversation that's coming up with Jim is that he really demonstrates, like Richard, someone who lives in the first and the second half of life at the same time. Right. Really integrated. Just like Richard, Jim has this childlike quality of wonder where his eyes sparkle and he smiles real big and he gets so excited about talking about healing and transformation and the mystical path. And yet he has this gravitas, this big Gandalf energy where he feels 10,000 years old and as wise as the roots of the mountain. And he just makes all that real for us and helps us experience the, the teaching in three dimensions. Beautiful. Yeah, his poetic voice through all of that just carries us to the depths of what is possible, I think, in falling upwards and seeing it from a whole nother angle. And, and uh, your description, the Gandalf description with the roots, I think, it carries the day when thinking about Jim. It really, it really fits. Especially with that hobbit hair and beard. The new beard. The new beard is one of my favorite things. Oh, it sounds like Mike's got a soundtrack for us. This is my, this is my music for Jim. This is the Gandalf. Oh, it's so good. Every time I see him, I hear this in the back of my mind. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So with that, we hope you enjoy this interview with uh, Dr. Jim Finley. We don't see Dr. Jim with Jim Finley, Lovingly. affectionately known as Uncle, Uncle Jim. Jim. I like that. Good synergy. Yeah, that was perfect. <laughs> Jim, welcome. We are so happy to have you be a part of this conversation on Richard's book, Falling Upward. And I love the unique perspective that you bring to this theme, this idea of the two halves of life. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind just sharing how you bring your own mystical sensibilities and contemplative perspective to how you look at the, the themes of falling upward of the two halves of life. Yes. Yeah, my, my, my sense is this. You know, first of all, it's typical of Richard. It's so insightful to help us be more conscious of the transformational shift that happens between the first and second half. And how in the first half, it's kind of an ascent of, of, of getting needs met and, and finding one's place in the world and working through challenges and th that, all of that, and the complexities of the challenges of it and so on. Then as you as, as the wave crests midpoint, you start coming down the other side, there's a qualitative shift toward gratitude, toward presence, toward being, toward wisdom, toward kind of internalizing the wisdom of the journey and so on. And and there's the grace, the faith illumines both halves. So the person who's a, is a faith-filled person in the first half is, is illumined by their faith in the first half, and as the first half of life person is illumined. And the person in the second half is illumined by faith as the second half is illumined. So that's the, the gestalt thing. My, my sense is this, and I, I 
it was it helped me to put this together in the next issue of Wanting on my take on it. And I'll, I'll show the opening scene first, and we'll dialogue a bit about it. Years ago, um, I was leading a silent weekend retreat, and this elderly woman, she was in her 80s at the time, uh, told me that she, as she was sitting in the silence of the retreat, there, there washed over her a vivid memory of herself as a 10-year-old girl growing up on the family farm. And she said that in this memory, she uh, uh, went out in this one summer afternoon into the orchard of the farm, and she lay down in the tall grass of the orchard, uh, looking at the clouds go by slowly overhead. And she said the memory was, this, and this is why she wanted to tell me this. She said as, as she was lying there in the tall grass of the orchard, it became very vivid to her in a way she can't explain that she was lying there in God. This experience like that. So I, I started exploring that. I started exploring that. And, um, and my thought is this, is the first insight I would have, that uh, she, she was a 10-year-old girl, first half of life, but in the moment the awakening event of lying there in God was actually occurring, she wasn't in time. She wasn't young. She was in eternity. She was in eternity. And, um, she, and in that moment then, we'll be looking at this closer and closer as we go through these reflections here together, is, uh, is kind of tasting uh, the, the upwelling of the eternality of God, uh, uh, manifesting itself incarnate in and as the passage of time. It's, it's, it's the upwelling of the depth dimension that never passes away, ribbon through all that is perpetually passing away, intimately realized. And so when, it, when the moment passed, we don't, she doesn't remember what she did next, like if she ran in to tell her parents, and we would hope that they'd be supportive of that. Uh, maybe she didn't say a word. Sometimes children have these experiences, they don't say anything, they don't know what the words are for it. And, uh, uh, and so then the fact that in her 80s, what happens though, with some people, it plants a seed of longing to follow that path. And the very fact she was drawn in her 80s to come to a silent retreat suggested did that awakening led her on that path, which is what led her to the retreat. So while she was sitting there in the silence of the retreat, in the silence of the retreat where this memory washed over her, in the moment that it was washing over her, she wasn't old. She wasn't in time. She wasn't in the second half. She was in eternity. She was in the eternality of the, of the vertical depth dimension of the divine washing up through and giving itself in a moment of, of time, the passageless passage of time this way. And um, so that's, that's the insight like this. But then as, as the moment passed, she, she reflected upon it interiorly as an old woman. And therefore we have to say that in reflective consciousness, her ability as an old woman to reflect in time on the transcendence of time was qualitatively richer than when she was 10 years old when she tried to, when she reflected on the passages, passages of time and time. So that's my initial insight with this. Wow. That's a lot to just let soak it and saturate because so much of what I hear you saying in this is that the way we understand or the way that you're expressing the two halves of life is the way that eternality is just the upwelling. And we use linear time as a way to 
experience and otherwise it's just too much to take all at once. Yes. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. I want to say it first in the depth dimension first, okay. and then experientially, for like how we experience it. Uh, you know, one insight is, I think there's a book, Tremontant, on a study of Hebrew thought. And one of the ideas is that to know that for God, the moment God, first words of Genesis of the Torah, let there be light. God's in the, be in the beginning. God said, let there be light. They forgot the moment in which God said, let there be light, in beginning uh, manifested reality. And the moment that we're in right now having this conversation, for God, it's the same moment, because that's yes. eternity. It's, it's non-sequential plenitude, this way. And so the non-sequential plenitude of eternality see, is welling up and giving itself incarnate in and as now. So we notice that it's always now. It's always now. I mean, even now it's now. But in time, our temporal self, we have a memory, a past. It's not spontaneous. You know, it's not a, you know, it unfolds through time. And over time, which is a contemplative depth dimension, there's a sensitivity to the eternality of the passage of time passing away. And this is why I think, too, is the symbolism of Jesus uh, rising and ascending into heaven with his wounds. So it's, it's the eternality of suffering and glory, see, conquered by love this way. And, um, and so as we go through day by day, we have our daily schedule, we're in time. But we can be sensitized to this and sense that this fleeting moment, watering the house plants, whatever, is forever. Another, another way to put it is this way, I put it in one of my essays, is that we don't really understand human nature until we understand why a small child on a merry-go-round will wave at its parents every time around and they always wave back, see? Mm. Like death and resurrection, death and resurrection, death and resurrection. Uh, things only seem to go away, but nothing ever really goes away because everything real is forever. Once I was in the monastery and asked Dan Walsh in the philosophy class, if we could say that after the geographical Tokyo no longer exists, there'll still be Tokyo. He said, yes, he, he said, so because Tokyo is in God's mind. So when the three, when we die and go into God, we'll go into us having this conversation forever, that everything. So you learn to trust in the eternality of the fleetingness as trustworthy. So there's that in us that's born in time. It goes through time and it disappears in time. But the eternal depth dimension of the self that's born in time and dies in time, there's a welling up of the depth dimension of the eternality of ourself that's unborn. Because in exemplar causality, God knew who you were, hidden with Christ and God before the origins of the universe. And since God has never, 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 never not known who you are, and since everything in God is God, this is the divinity of you this way. And, uh, and likewise, the you that's unborn, then going through time, uh, will never, never, never die. Because God will never, never, never not know who you are hidden with Christ and God forever. So what we're trying to do in faith is we're trying to live in the kind of the luminosity of that, the sensitivity of that. And then there's certain moments of absorption, contemplative, which I think example of this woman having this mm -hmm. moment, where we, we drop down into the depths of the eternality <clears throat> in a moment of time. This is why I think when these awakening moments, sometimes they take us by surprise. 
But I think once we get a taste of them, uh, because they tend to be fleeting, we can't make them happen. But we can assume the stance that offers the least resistance to be overtaken by the abiding of the eternality, which is meditation practice. So in deep meditative states, in states of deep absorption, this is why when you return to ego consciousness, you have to see how much time passed because you weren't in time. So, it's, 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 so time and eternity are not dualistically other than each other. It's the, it's the alchemy of the interplay of the eternality of the passage of time. It never passes away. So that's my sense. Oof. What, a, what a gift of that interplay. It's, um, wow. Uh, Jim, you said a lot. I actually, I don't want to be greedy here. I immediately have three follow-up questions I want to ask you. Okay. <laughs> um, but I, I want to start with this. Um, you know, we typically think of when we talk about the two halves of life as sort of, and every, everything I have to say comes down to this. We think of the two halves of life as we go through the first half of life. Maybe we build a container, things happen. Then we move beyond that and we go into the second half of life. But what I hear you describing is a way that, and I'll, I'll say this and then you can respond, uh, a way that we sort of are living in both at the same time, all the time, because there's a timelessness to who we are. And, uh, go ahead. Uh, I wanna respond back to that first. Sure. Let, let's say that's certainly true in reflective consciousness in its passage through time. In, in, in other words, it's true uh, right now, as I'm speaking right now, I'm 80 years old. But in, interiorly in me is the living memory of myself through time, I can, I'm three years old, five years old, like this. So the past lives on interiorly within me, in the temporal self, in the reflective self. And likewise, in my reflective self, I have a qualitative sense of what lies ahead, because I've been here for a while. You know? yeah. So there is that reflective kind of interior timelessness of the temporal self through memory. But, but we're alluding to the, at a more interior level than that is the eternality of God, mm. the, the trans-temporality of the eternality, like that, which is a, when we're in a deep contemplative state, we, we drop into the consciousness of that, which is always there. Yeah, I'm thinking, it's so good. I, I'm thinking about how that translates into the container of living our day-to-day -day life. So I, I'll say a really, really nerdy, sentence, Corey, that you can cut if it's not helpful. But when, um, when we were studying archetypal psychology, James Hillman, who Jim, I know you know, is one of the greatest archetypal psychologists. And he would talk about, uh, this is the nerdy part you can cut, the dyadic relationship between archetypes. And he said that we talk about things like the puer, the experience of the eternal youth, like that sort of idea of the person who's always young. And then we talk about the Senex, the, the experience of the old man, or even the person who's an old soul, right? People talk about how sometimes some of their kids, you're like, gosh, they just feel like such an old soul. And the insight that Hillman gave is that these two things are very often connected. We, we a lot of us, if we really get in touch with our depth, experience ourselves as children and as old before our time at the same time. Yeah. And then we have to sort of live that reality. And I feel like, Jim, a lot of our listeners 
And a lot of the readers of Falling Upward were drawn to that book because in some way it explained something they experienced, moving from one half of life to another, having an existential crisis, whatever. But I feel like there's a lot of folks who feel a little bit like they're in the second half of life when chronologically they should be in the first half or chronologically they're in mm -hmm. the second half of life, but they have this childlike wonder that kind of brings it all together. So I don't know if this question makes sense, but what I'm asking you is coming from the place of that eternality, when we then turn to live our ordinary life of chores and dishes and parenting and jobs, or, or retirement and relationship and, and uh, life's transitions, how do we live both of those at the same time? Like how do we be the child and the wise person as much as we're able? First I should ask, does that question make sense? No, it does. Okay. Does um, my sense is this, I, uh, this could even be happening when we're in, living alone in solitude or uh, having a very intimate conversation with the beloved. It also happens in the deep moments of psychotherapy. And it happens this way. I, I think that uh, when we settle into a moment of being deeply present in the present moment, either in the silence and solitude, or having a very intimate conversation with someone, or uh, in the unfolding of therapy, there's a certain kind of settling into the moment where one is spontaneously expressing what arises within you. And what arises within you might make you laugh. It might be very childlike. What arises within you might be the sadness. What arises within you is the weight of the accumulation of time. But the point is you're being real. You're being real. And, you're, and also there's another level too, I think, where if you're in the process of being real with someone this way, you also intuit Thoughts arise within you, but you don't say them because they get in the way. You're kind of protective of a stream, of a continuum. And it goes back and forth from being playful and childlike and sad and real, but it's the consistency of being authenticity in the mm -hmm. present as a, as a Tao, as a flowing present reality that you're incarnating right at that moment. And I think part of wisdom or growing older that, that sensitivity of perpetual authenticity can become more and more habitual. You know, that you're more and more living out of this. And so, so there is then this passage through time, an external consciousness. There's this interior sensitivity of the passage through time with these dimensions of ourself, where these archetypal aspects of ourselves rise and fall within us. And we learn to move with the flow like this. And there's deeper down beyond that is the very eternality of God being infused into us in infused states of contemplation. Uh, so, yeah. That's great. That's incredible. Yeah. Something to look forward to. Too. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's your next follow-up question, Mike? Oh my gosh, I don't want to be, I don't want to be um, greedy. Um, okay. The next follow-up question. But you're being, see, you know, you're being authentically greedy, Mike. Oh, yes. that's great. That's great. I'm doing it on purpose. <laughs> you're you're modeling for all of us. Oh, Here's, my gosh. Yeah, amazing. I, How to be contemplatively greedy. Exactly. So, well, so the funny thing is the other two questions, one goes in a very practical direction and the other goes a, a little bit, skews a little more back to, to the mystical uh, orientation. But if we were to go super practical first, um, Jim, one of the things that 
I have really appreciated about reading your memoir um, and getting to have conversations with you is that you have consistently reminded me, i find my notes here. You have consistently reminded me that we are growing in different ways all the time at different rates, right? right? So if we say first half of life, you know, we're building a container, second half of life, we're asking these deep questions of meaning. When I look at your memoir, I see and I read someone who because of, probably because of your trauma and your training, was very much living out of the second half of life very, very early. That's true. In the, in the way that you're mystic, mystically oriented, you know, yeah. you're know, you traveling around the country, you're teaching um, Merton's Palace of Nowhere and so on and so forth. Oh, and yet in the raw honesty of sharing the difficulty of some of your life experiences, when I read about your first marriage and your second marriage, I can see where there was a container that blew up and then you did your second marriage so differently. So it seems like in, in that area of your life, the second half of life wisdom came a little later. And so one of the things that you've told me personally, which is, and, and you've told our living school students is just because we can be spiritually very mature or even emotionally and psychologically very mature in one area of our life and be in the second half of life in one area of our life, it doesn't mean that we're not still healing and maturing and growing in another area that's a little bit, that's still on the way. I don't wanna say less mature, let's say mm -hmm. still growing. Mm -hmm. Does that question make sense? And if so, what insight can you give us for recognizing that it's not as clean and simple as we've arrived or we haven't, or someone's in the first half of life, someone's in the second half, but we're all growing at different yes. ways and different aspects all at the yeah. same time. Does that make sense? No, it does make sense. I wanna say it back. Yes. I was speaking of myself, reflecting on my own life. I think really my first mystical awakenings happened when I was very young, maybe four years old. But I experienced and understood them as a four-year-old. And then when I was in the monastery, I was 18 years old and lived in silence for six years and uh, lived uh, like in eternity because you know, there, mm -hmm. there was no time. Uh, because there was no television, there was no radio, we didn't talk to each other. No one ever came in, no one ever left. And so the only time was liturgical time chanting the Psalms, you know, in silence. And so I, I lived in this kind of cyclic, liturgical, timeless time of, uh, uh, of, of that. And uh, I had, it had a deep and lasting effect on me, on the timelessness of this. And, uh, but at the same time that I was in that kind of gift of that awakening, I was carrying inside of me the internalized trauma that I, but from my child, I didn't even know it was there. I didn't even know it was there. And when it broke open and came out, I had a breakdown and I left. And so uh, these different levels, there's the interplay of how they intersect each other. And, uh, and that's the enigmatic uh, dimension of growth. I think, you know I mean? We, we fall back into uh, a vestige of the past. We haven't internalized and acknowledged and it wells up unexpectedly out of an interaction. And then we're to face it and walk through it and taste it and sit with it. And then when you come out the other side of that, uh, you come out the wiser for it because it's, there's more internalized acceptance of these dimensions of yourself. And just as you start to get the hang of it, another unexpected thing comes welling up. 
And you go, and then pretty soon you learn to understand how this works and you start expecting the unexpected nature of everything and you, don't long, you no longer expect anything. See? And uh, there's a way of coming to that kind of timelessness in time, I think, which I think takes time. That's great. The timelessness in time takes time. <laughs> yeah. But I want to say this too. I want to say this is so important because that's just, this is the mystical part. The mystical part is, is, is uh, let's say we're talking about uh, layers of, of experiential knowledge for ourselves as we go through time in the light of eternity. There's a certain point in the spiritual life, in meditation, in prayer, in life, where the word, where consciousness, uh, we still can use the word consciousness, but it's no longer our consciousness. It's God's consciousness of God being passively infused into us in a profound and obscure way, none distinct, where we and God mutually disappear as other than each other. And we no longer identify with the self that passes through time, but rather we identify with God identified with us eternally forever. And uh, that's the mystical dimension. But that mystical timeless dimension is lived out in time. So you're in time, but you're not subject to time. So you're in time, you're in the, you, you, there's a sense of the eternality of every moment. And that's why you're always looking for the authentic encounter with somebody, see, which is mercy. Or like, how can I be helpful? You're always, uh, you know, to, to, and you, you try to meet them in such a way that they experience something of the eternality of the moment that you're together, like this, where the vertical depth dimension wells up out of these. So you meet each other horizontally in time but you meet in such a way that you taste something within yourself of God that's incarnate in the encounter in time, see? Which, which makes the moment memorable like that, I think. And that, you meet that moment without expectation. Yeah, like, yeah, the, yeah the, that's the right. That you, that's, that's, you've kind of led up to that. You meet that moment with the expectation. And so there is this authentic upwelling of momentary mysticism that you hope to permeate throughout the the days and saturation of your life. Yeah, yes, I, I put it this way. Uh, you learn to live without identifying with all your ongoing expectations because you always have expectations, but you know their expectations. Yeah. And you know that uh, some of them will fall away. There's nothing to it. Likewise, some of them will happen. But notice when the expectation happens, what actually happens, it isn't what you expected it to be. It's never what you thought it would be on your way there. Like this. But then, although there's these constant expectations, because you're human, it, you disidentify with expectations because you're living in the constancy of a moment in which nothing's missing. There's nothing to expect because nothing's missing. And uh, so that's the vertical depth dimension of the, div of the eternality of now, of the divinity of life and our nothingness without God, which includes then the, the wavering ways of our expectations as incarnate, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's my sense of it. This reminds me of something, a phrase that you use, and I think about it often with chronological time in the, in the two halves of life, but I think it, it pairs well with what you've shared so far, and that phrase is the, the divinity of diminishment. Yeah. And I think folks, as they age in chronological time, there is this diminishment that happens physically, emotionally, and this could happen at any stage of life, of course. Um, 
but what is the what is the eternality that kind of gets freed up in that yeah. diminishment? Because anytime I mention this to anybody who's in in elderhood or reaching elderhood, they, their eyes light up. That that phrase seems to carry so much with it. How do yeah. you share the divinity of diminishment? Um, here's one way I put it that I usually I, I use the image of a mother holding her newborn infant and as she holds her infant and gazes into its unknowing eyes uh, she's just struck by how limited the infant is the essence of limit can't sit up, can't walk, can't talk can't help with the chores, can't roll over by itself. It's the essence of limit. But the image I use, you know, infants have this clasping reflex. Say, but with the strength with which it, it, the infant clasps her extended little finger, I say like a king or queen holding a scepter, it all but carries her heart away. And she knows that if she were to die in the act of saving the life of this infant, she would die in the truth, which is the limitless nature of limits. The next point is, is that this infant in this moment reveals her to herself that she's even capable of that realization. And she also knows the same is true of her. There is a limitless nature of her limits, but it's buried under the identifying with all of her limits and all of her attainments, but buried underneath it all. Like this. But through a life of silence or a life of love or a life of surrender, the, the, the glow of that can shine through, shine through, shine. So then I say, years later, imagine that infant grows up and the, the infant goes into their own autonomous adulthood. They go through life, whatever it is. And imagine that uh, the child, as a, an adult, stays close to the mother. They have this really, and they're both grateful for it over time. And finally, at long last, uh, the mother who held that infant is in a nursing home in hospice. And the child that she held is sitting next to her and the chair pulled up next to her bed. And the child, the adult child, who's now middle-aged, older, is so aware of how limited the, her mother, the mother is. She can't see, she can't talk. She might not even remember anymore who the child is. But with the imperial strength with which the dying mother holds the adult child's extended little finger like a king or queen holding a scepter, it all but carries the person's heart away. And when you look, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in the stages of dying in a denial, bargain, death, so on, uh, what acceptance is, I think, acceptance is freedom from the tyranny of death in the midst of death. And when you look into the face of the dying loved one, you know it's the gate of heaven. And so what we're trying to do is how, why wait till the 11th hour to live that way? See, how can I learn to live in the limitless nature of my limits, in the timeless nature of time? See, and uh, uh, the, 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 like the eternality, the falling away, freedom from the tyranny of time in the midst of time, as a way to be radically present in the eternality of time. So... Anyway, that's like, so what happens is, yes, the, the, the divinity of diminishment, the dying person is a person who's dying. It's the essence of diminishment. But in the dying of the diminishment is the divinity of the person becomes incandescent. So it just shines, shines out this way. And then that dying loved one reveals us to ourself. See, how do I find the incandescence of of, uh, of an innate, that how, how can I realize that through the genera generosity of God, I'm worth all that God is worth in my eternal nothingness without God. 
And how is it even now shining out like this? And how can I free myself from what hinders me from seeing that and living by it? So we can't, we can't attain it because it's already infinitely there, but we can't lose it either. So if we're even capable of attaining or losing it, it's infinitely less than what we're talking about because we can't attain or lose the, the generosity of God being poured out as this conversation. But we're talking about how do I get a taste of it and then through a life of meditation and prayer, how do I habituate a sensitivity to this and learn to walk with it this way? Wow. I, uh, you know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about, Jim, we had a conversation earlier with Richard about falling upward. And one of the things that came up in the conversation, we were thinking about that, that great line from T.S. Eliot, uh, which I know you know, we shall not cease from exploration. And at the end of all our exploring, the end of all our exploring will be, I'm just going to do that again. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And so I'm, I'm thinking about going home, right? The idea of homecoming, that there's this calling, uh, calling to a home that maybe we've, we've never known. Um, you know, we get nerdy and talk about the nostos and the pothos in Greek mythology or how the Odyssey plays such a big role in, in Richard's book. But really, I think my question for you is, how do you think falling upward is really a story about homecoming? And do you think there is something to the fact that myth and mystery and mysticism all meet in this longing of our heart for a home that it both remembers but maybe doesn't fully know yet? Yeah. Yeah. Um, here's, here's the way it came to me when I was writing the memoir, poetically, is that if we take the moment we emerged onto the earthly plane, you know, as, a, as we showed up in the world, and how I put it is that um, when we're born onto the earthly plane, uh, God uh, exhales the infinity of God uh, onto the earthly plane as us in our passage through time from birth to death. So, and so inhale, exhale, exhale, ex inhale, like this. And at the end, so our first act on when we're born, uh, the moment was we let, we let out this big scream. We, we, we swing us up by our ankles and, and we, we, we take a deep breath. And the last thing we do on earth is we exhale and we don't inhale. So we inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. And at the very end, we exhale, but don't inhale. But instead of looking at it as a linear line, like back here was my birth, ahead of me is my death, that it forms a circle. And so what I see at 80 years old, what goes around comes around. And uh, so the moment of my going to exhale and won't inhale, I'm looking at it now. It's like right up ahead <laughs> of me. And, and so those two uh, touch each other. There's a certain moment where they meet and the circle completes itself. But really, deeper down, is that that moment where the beginning and the end, the, all of this, is actually the, 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 the divine timeless center of every moment of time all the way around the circle. It's just that in the centrifugal force of life's demands, we spin out and away from experiential groundedness and the oneness that's eternally there like this. And so it isn't just that the circle completes itself, 
and the moment of birth and death is one. But the moment completes itself in, in, a, in a life of, with, filled with deep love, like radically surrendered over to love or to solitude or silence or service or the acceptance of suffering. And therefore, you're always at home. You're always at home because although you see you waver this way and that, uh, the infinite presence of God is an unwavering presence that permeates your wavering ways. And that habituated sensitivity to the unwavering presence that's incarnate in and as your wavering ways is a kind of a contemplative wisdom. Like this. That's the way I experience it for me. That's so helpful. That's so helpful, Jim, to that imagery too of that full circle, that return back to that first, first breath and, yeah. and, and kind of the mystical interpretation that one can be drawn to this of, of, yeah. of, of going and, through that circle of the journey. Yeah, and I think something else too, when we talk like mm -hmm. this, this kind of language, when we hear it, we intuit that we, it, it's not nonsense to us, but it's not explainable either. Mm -hmm. So when we hear it, it bears witness to the heart, what the heart knows is true. I Pascal, you know, the heart has reasons of which the mind knows nothing. It's the unfigureoutable plenitude of what the heart knows is true. And we're trying to find our way to be habitually faithful to it and live by it. And uh, it's the spiritual life, I guess. And Jim, as you're saying that about, you know, that the heart knows is true. I'm thinking about some of our younger listeners, folks who falling upward, they were, they're drawn to it and maybe it hasn't become the, the fruit of their life yet. They haven't had enough of their own experiences that, that have shown them how they want to live in this kind of way that you're speaking of. What, what kind of guidance would you, I guess not just younger listeners, but anyone who wants to be on this type of path, what kind of guidance would you offer them to helping create the conditions or build a posture that bends towards mystery in this contemplative stance? Well, my sense is this. Really, you know, for years I taught high school. I taught seniors in a Jesuit high school. And um, uh, in one of the schools I had, every Friday, uh, uh, we had uh, what we called fireside chats with old Mr. Finley. I wasn't that really that Amazing. old to them, but to them I was old. Right. And uh, so they got a fireplace made of cardboard, a full-size fireplace, and they got a rug and a rocking chair. And I would sit in the rocking chair and I would hold a pipe. And they would raise and ask questions about God or why they don't believe in God or why they do and talk. And these fireside chats with old Mr. Finley uh, was like a highlight of the week. And I thought, really, that's religion class right there. So mm -hmm. one thing I would do is to be, uh, to be encouraged by the mother or the father or the grandparent or the person that you sense holds some of this wisdom. Another thing I would think is, another thing is, is to learn to trust in the stirrings of aspirations like this. And because if we don't have anyone to encourage us, like a stirring to paint or to draw or a courage to spend a long time alone or a courage to be drawn in a certain direction, like to kind of like, be, like listen to your heart and trust and see, see, where, see where it goes. So you don't, don't, don't close it off and be patient with it. Be endlessly patient and attentive with it. And also I think to trust, for young people to learn to trust a growing uh, capacity, like the felt sense of something ringing true, even though you can't explain it, or the felt sense of something, this doesn't sit right, but I don't know why. 
And so I'd encourage them to stabilize and growing that sensitivity and learn to be present to and with the older people with who they sense has some sense of this. And also, I think certain writers, you know, there's certain poems or authors or certain movies too, you can see, and you're, you're deeply moved by it. Like whoever wrote this script knows something that I know is true as I was watching it like this. And so you learn to have faith in certain people whose words, uh, Zen Master Dogen says, find that person whose words awaken your heart with the desire for the great way and forget everything else. That person's your teacher. And so I, was, I would suggest things like this. That's what I would urge young people to do. Thanks, Jim. Gosh, I'm, I'm still, I'm like having a moment with uh, what you were saying earlier, Jim, about the circularity of the, of the breaths. Um, Can I, can I share it like a story? Is that okay? Yeah. Um, This weekend was the, the 15 year anniversary of uh, one of the more, intense experiences I've ever had in my life. And your words take me there. Um, So I, 15 years ago, I was, my, my mom was dying. I was in the hospital with her and um, she was kind she was in a very, very slightly reactive coma. And so she was dying from a brain tumor. And I remember I had this very vivid experience where I was sitting next to her uh, as she was laying there in her hospital bed and her eyes were open just a little bit. And I remember I had my hand in her hand and her hand squeezed on my hand just a little bit. And I remember saying to myself, oh, she knows I'm here, right? I'm, she's, some part of her knows that I'm here with her. And I leaned over and her eyes were just tiny, tiny little slits open just a little bit. And they were kind of drifting back and forth. And I made eye contact with her and I got her eyes to hold my eyes. And I remember thinking, she can see me. She knows I'm here. And I'm um, watching her take her, her dying breaths, really. She, was, she would only live about another week after this. Um, she was actively dying. And, um, and then she coughed. And there was this moment of like agitation and I, I remember a nurse like leaned over to make sure she was okay. And, and it was just this moment of connecting with her. And at exactly that moment, my sister tapped me on the shoulder and she'd gotten a phone call. So we, I kissed my mom goodbye. We jumped in a car. We drove across town to another hospital and went into this other hospital. And there was my niece who had just been born, just been born. And her father... My brother had died five months previous. And so she's, there's my, you know, I'd lost my brother, losing my mom. There's my brand new niece. And she's sitting there and her mom's holding her. And I put my (laughs) finger into her hand and her tiny little hand like gripped my finger Mm. really tight. And I was like, oh my God, she knows it's me. And her eyes were open. And you know, those like, oh my God. And I like looked her in the eye and I remember saying, like, it's she knows I'm here. That's not just reflex. Same thing I'd said with my mom. That's not just reflex. She knows I'm here. She knows I'm here and I love her and I'm here for her. And then she gave like a tiny little cough or a tiny little sneeze. And there was a nurse right there. And the nurse leaned over to make sure she was okay. The exact same way the nurse in the other hospital had leaned over to yeah. make sure my mom was okay. 
And my world at exactly that moment just cracked open. Yeah. There was something about the symmetry of sitting there with my finger in her hand just a few min minutes after sitting with my hand in my mom's hand, like making that eye contact, hearing those breaths. Um, and I just like, I, I, I don't know how to explain it. As like time and space and everything just, just unraveled and I saw the spiral. Um, and I, and I just, I don't know, Jim, your, your description takes me back to that. And I, I'd love your reaction to it. And also really to ask, like so many people listening, so many of us have had moments like that. How do we live in fidelity to what is revealed to us in those moments that crack open and show us the big picture? Yeah, very good. Thanks for sharing that. Lovely. Beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. I have some thoughts. Because my guess, my first thought is this. I think often when we talk about searching for God or the experience of God, and as if somehow, especially when you read the mystics, like there's this overwhelming thing, and, and some things like that do happen to people. They do. But I think actually, more often than not, it's closer to what you're saying. They're actually extremely subtle. They're very, very subtle. And what we're really doing, when moments like this happen, the grace of the moment calibrates our heart to a fine enough scale that we tune into this divinity that's always there like this. And so that's the first thing, I think. And, and therefore, um, uh, we know what matters. It's, see, it's like Thomas Merton used to say, there are certain things in life that we simply have to accept as true or we go crazy inside. And they're the very things we can't explain to anybody, including ourselves. Dan Walsh used to say in the philosophy classes, I know it, I know it, I know that I know it. The trouble is it's I who know that I know it. And when I try to tell you what I know that I know, I don't know what to say. I can't explain it because I can't even explain it to myself. It's the intimate, is being intimately accessed by the unexplainable that I know is true. So the first thing is a kind of a face, in the, not to play the cynic. That I'm in the most childlike hour in the unexpected moment. There was a granting of something. They grace my life, they grace my life. The next insight is this. It's trusting that that moment that you saw, that you spoke of, it wasn't as if in that moment of birth and death, synchronicity together, it isn't as if something more was given, but a curtain opened and you fleetingly tasted what every moment is. And so it isn't just one to, it's to trust our own heart, not to play the cynic, the, the, the truth of the unexplainable, which is abyss-like and all-encompassing, unexplainable. Now, but also then to know that uh, the importance of a daily rendezvous, where we slow down enough that we might be quietly overtaken by this welling up of the depth that's always there. And, and I think that's the commitment to the daily practice. So a daily practice is any act habitually entered into it with our whole heart that takes us to the deeper place. So it might be the quiet hour at day's end, the long, slow walk to no place in particular, tending the roses in the presence of the beloved, in the presence of children. Whatever it is that disarms you and unravels your ability to explain and live in it. And then what happens then in, the, in being faithful to your practice, you ask for the grace each time the moment passes 
because the cell phone just went off or something. You ask God for the grace not to break the thread of that sensitivity. So little by little, you connect the dots. And there's less and less difference between the moments of the quickening and uh, 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 pouring boiling water over a tea bag. You know, there's, there's like an underlying an, a subtle consistency of the divinity of ordinariness and all of it. So those are some of my thoughts. And, and thanks for sharing that because I love stories like that where people share that in therapy or they'll say, I haven't thought this in a long time. And they'll say it. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. What a note for us to go out on, I think. There's been so much that you've shared, Jim, and that has come up in this conversation. And part of the through line for me is just paying attention deeply to your life. Like yeah. the, that eternality is always welling up. And how can we slow down enough to pay attention? Yeah. What are the practices, perspectives, elders that can help us do that? And so thank you so much for being a part of this conversation today and for really, really helping us slow down to what is welling up for us and how yeah. God is at work uh, yeah. in our day-to-day lives. Yeah. A closing note, I, I love that saying by Thomas Merton, when it comes to these matters, to understand is to just accept the fact that you're infinitely understood. And we rest in that. And it gives itself to us. So, yeah, this was a grace, this conversation. So I'm glad this happened. Thank you. As we bring our mini series to a close, It's been amazing to have you with us, and we hope that you've really felt like you're a part of the conversation. We've talked so much about the importance of questions and the gift it is to get to interact with Richard's teaching and ask questions. And so as we send you into a break for the holidays, we thought what might be interesting is for all of us to stay in the conversation together as we share with you the questions that we're going to be sitting with. This section of the show is designed to invite all of us to carry the conversation on between episodes by giving us contemplative prompts and questions to carry into our own deep heart and into dialogue with each other. Listening to Jim and Richard talk about falling upward and the wisdom of the two halves of life and seeing how they've integrated it, it just invites me to reflect on where I experience childlike wonder in my own life the way they do, where there's invitations for me to see the magic and the mystery in the ordinary life right in front of me. But it also invites me to wonder and compassionately notice where there are immature places in my own life where I'm still maybe stuck in the first half of life and I have an invitation to grow up a little bit. And yet at the same time, I can ask myself where parts of me are really demonstrating the wisdom of the second half of life, where I, where there's, a, there's a little bit of me that has, has the sages of the ages speaking out, guiding me, grounding me. And with Richard and Jim, asking how I can integrate all of that, to hold that childlike wonder with an awareness of all my invitations to grow and mature and playfully recognize (laughs) my areas of sort of lack. Um, 
Yeah. I love, I love those invitations to grow. You offer such tender questions that I think get to the heart of that conversation that we just heard of both first with Richard and then with Jim and how we can take these teachings, respond with questions like this to try to live them, our responses to those questions in our daily life. And that is so much of how we're going to conclude these episodes is by acknowledging the questions or the practices or the prompts that might lead us further in to how we can live this. Because it does take mirroring back, self-examination, community practice to allow the discovery of some of our growing edges and also some of the, our own wisdom within. But to just hold all of that gently. I love the way that Jim talks about, you know, creating the conditions of least resistance. And I think that's how we're going to try to end these episodes is with some sort of contemplative prompt that creates those conditions of least resistance to put all of us in that mode of deepening how we live these teachings forward. If we think it's a, an inch deep or 12 feet deep or a thousand feet deep, uh, different things will hit us at different parts of our life. So the invitation there is so rich as we look to questions like this to wrap up our conversations. That's amazing. So as we send folks into the holidays with an invitation to pick up Falling Upward yet again, let's revisit those questions that we started out with. So we leave you with these four questions, which will be in the show notes and you can come back later and drop into your journal. But right now we invite you to just take a moment to get quiet and let these questions drop into your heart. Wherever you are, and of course, if you're driving, please do this in a way that's not dangerous for anyone else. First, we invite you to find your feet. Let them ground you deeply and give you an experience of support. From there, we encourage you to find your seat. Once again, feel yourself planted wherever you are. Find your heartbeat. Drop into the easy rhythm of the wisdom of your body. And as you feel your heart beating, offer a greeting to the following invitations for reflection. First, ask yourself, where do I experience the best of the first half of life wisdom? Where am I meeting the world with childlike wonder and celebration, seeing the magic and the mystery in all the beautiful, ordinary happenings of every moment of every day? How can I lean more into that childlike celebration?
And our second question, to look inward with a, a gentle gaze at the places in your life where you sense a particular type of immaturity or a place that you might see aspects of growth that are possible. To hold those places within yourself, these places that we might call first half of life, How do you see opportunities for growth to welcome the wisdom of the teachings of the spirit falling upward of yourself and your community, calling you to lean in to what we might call second half of life wisdom? And our third prompt is that even as you compassionately see that there are inevitably some areas of your life that are immature or still need a little bit of growing up, we invite you to recognize the other areas where you experience deep second half of life wisdom. where the sages of the ages in their wisdom are made real in you. Recognize your own deep wisdom and experience that like a wise, loving elder or a wide, wise, loving grandparent, offering you insight, putting their arm around you, telling you that you got this and it's all going to be okay. And our fourth question, we invite you to sit with how you might be called, called forward to integrate this first half and second half of life experience and wisdom looking at the teachers that exemplify this for you, whether they are on a stage or in your own community, how do you sense your own call towards deeper integration in your own life, in your own context? We're so excited for you to join us in this contemplative conversation in the coming weeks and months as you reflect and in the coming seasons as we explore Richard's works together. Thank you for helping us live the teachings forward so that we can all work together for a world where everyone and everything belongs. Thanks for listening to this podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation, an educational nonprofit that introduces seekers to the contemplative Christian path of transformation. To learn more about our work, visit us at cac.org. Everything Belongs is made possible thanks to the generosity of our supporters and the shared work of Mike Petro, Paul Swanson, Talitha Baker, Mikkel Chevrier, 
Izzy Spitz, Megan Hare, Sarah Palmer, Barb Lopez, Brandon Strange, and me, Corey Wayne. The music you hear is composed and provided by our friends, Hammock. And we'd also like to thank Sound On Studios for all of their work in post-production. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.